Chapter 11 of Thomas Wingfold Curate by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Curate at Home. If we could arrive at the feelings of a fish of the northern ocean, around which the waters suddenly rose to a tropical temperature and swarmed with strange forms of life, uncouth and threatening, we should have a fair symbol of the mental condition in which Thomas Wingfold now found himself. The spiritual fluid in which his being floated had become all at once more potent, and he was in consequence uncomfortable. A certain intermittent stinging, as from the flashes of some moral electricity, had begun to pass in various directions through the crude and chaotic mess he called himself, and he felt strangely restless. It never occurred to him, as how should it, that he might have commenced undergoing the most marvelous of all changes, one so marvelous indeed, that for a man to foreknow its result or understand what he was passing through would be more strange than that a caterpillar should recognize in the rainbow-winged butterfly hovering over the flower at whose leaf he was gnawing the perfected idea of his own potential self. I mean the change of being born again. Nor were the symptoms such as would necessarily have suggested even to a man experienced in the natural history of the infinite, that the process had commenced. A restless night followed his reflections in the churchyard, and he did not wake at all comfortable. Not that he ever had been in the way of feeling comfortable. To him life had not been a land flowing with milk and honey. He had had few smiles, and not many of those grasps of the hand which let a man know another man is near him in the battle. For had it not been something of a battle, how could he have come to the age of six and twenty without being worse than he was? He would not have said, All these things I have kept from my youth up. But I can say that for several of them he had shown fight, although only one knew of any of it. This morning, then, it was not merely that he did not feel comfortable. He was consciously uncomfortable. Things were getting too hot for him. That infidel fellow had poked several most awkward questions at him, yes, into him, and a good many more had in him self-arisen to meet them. Usually he lay a little while before he came to himself, but this morning he came to himself at once, and not liking the interview, jumped out of bed as if he had hoped to leave himself there behind him. He had always scorned lying, until one day, when still a boy at school, he suddenly found that he had told a lie after which he hated it. Yet now, if he was to believe... Ah, uh, whom did not the positive fellow and his own conscience say the same thing? His profession, his very life was a lie. The very bread he ate grew on the rank fields of falsehood. No, 
No, it was absurd. It could not be. What had he done to find himself damned to such a depth? Yet the thing must be looked to. He bathed himself without remorse, and never even shivered, though the water in his tub was bitterly cold. Dressed with more haste than precision, hurried over his breakfast, neglected his newspaper, and took down a volume of early church history. But he could not read. The thing was hopeless, utterly with the wolves of doubt and the jackals of shame howling at his heels, how could he start for a thousand-mile race? For God's sake, give him a weapon to turn and face them with. Evidence, all of it that was to be had, was but such as one man received, another man refused. And the popular acceptance was worth no more in respect of Christianity than of Mohammedanism for how many had given the subject at all better consideration than himself. And there was Sunday, with its wolves and jackals, and but a hedge between. He did not so much mind reading the prayers. He was not accountable for what was in them, although it was bad enough to stand up and read them. Happy thing he was not a dissenter, for then he would have to pretend to pray from his own soul, which would have been too horrible. But there was the sermon. That, at least, was supposed to contain, or to be presented as containing, his own sentiments. Now what were his sentiments? For the life of him he could not tell. Had he any sentiments, any opinions, any beliefs, any unbeliefs? He had plenty of sermons. Old, yellow, respectable sermons, not lithographed, neither composed by mind nor copied out by hand unknown, but in the neat writing of his old D.D. uncle, so legible that he never felt it necessary to read them over beforehand, just saw that he had the right one. A hundred and fifty-seven such sermons, the odd one for the year that began on a Sunday of unquestionable orthodoxy, had his kind old uncle left him in his will, with the feeling, probably, that he was not only setting him up in sermons for life, but giving him a fair start as well in the race of which a stall in some high cathedral was the goal. For his own part, he had never made a sermon, at least never one he had judged worth preaching to a congregation. He had rather a high idea, he thought, of preaching, and these sermons of his uncle he considered really excellent. Some of them, however, were altogether doctrinal, some very polemical. Of such he must now beware. He would see of what kind was the next in order. He would read it and make sure it contained nothing he was not, in some degree at least, prepared to hold his face to and defend if he could not absolutely swear he believed it purely true. He did as resolved. The first he took up was in defense of the Athanasian Creed. That would not do. He tried another. That was upon the inspiration of the Scriptures. He glanced through it, found Moses on a level with St. Paul, and Jonah with St. John, and doubted greatly. There might be a sense, but no, he would not meddle with it. He tried a third. That was on the authority of the church. It would not do. He had read each of all these sermons at least once, 
to a congregation with perfect composure and following indifference, if not peace of mind, but now he could not come on one with which he was even in sympathy, not to say one of which he was certain that it was more true than false. At last he took up the odd one, that which could come into use but once in a week of years, and this was the sermon Bascom heard and commented upon. Having read it over and found nothing to compromise him with his conscience, which was like an irritable man trying to find his way in a windy wood by means of a broken lantern, he laid all the rest aside and felt a little more relieved. Wingfold had never neglected the private duty of a clergyman in regard to morning and evening devotions, but was in the habit of dressing and undressing his soul with the help of certain chosen contents of the prayer book, a somewhat circuitous mode of communicating with him who was so near to him, that is, if St. Paul was right in saying that he lived and moved and was in him. But that Saturday he knelt by his bedside at noon, and he began to pray, or tried to pray, as he had never prayed or tried to pray before. The perplexed man cried out within the clergyman, and pressed for some acknowledgment from God of the being he had made. But was it strange to tell, or if strange was it not the most natural result nevertheless? Almost the same moment he began to pray in this truer fashion, the doubt rushed up in him like a torrent spring from the fountains of the great deep. Was there, could there be a God at all, a real being who might actually hear his prayer? In this crowd of houses and shops and churches, amidst buying and selling and plowing and praising and backbiting, this endless pursuit of ends and of means to ends, while yet even the wind that blew where it listed blew laws most fixed, and the courses of the stars were known to a hair's breadth, was there, could there be a silent, invisible God working his own will in it all? Was there a driver to that chariot whose multitudinous horses seemed tearing away from the pole in all directions? And was he indeed, although invisible and inaudible, guiding that chariot, sure as the flight of a comet, straight to its goal? Or was there a soul to that machine whose myriad wheels went grinding on and on, grinding the stars into dust, matter into man, and man into nothingness? Was there... Could there be a living heart to the universe that did positively hear him? Poor, misplaced, dishonest, ignorant Thomas Wingfold, who had presumed to undertake a work he neither could perform nor had the courage to forsake, when out of the misery of the grimy little cellar of his consciousness he cried aloud for light and something to make a man of him. For now that Thomas had begun to doubt like an honest being, every ugly thing within him began to show itself to his awakened probity. But honest and of good parentage as the doubts were, 
no sooner had they shown themselves than the wings of the ascending prayers fluttered feebly and failed they sank slowly fell and lay as dead while all the wretchedness of his position rushed back upon him with redoubled inroad here was a man who could not pray and yet must go and read prayers and preach in the old attesting church as if he too were of those who knew something of the secrets of the almighty and could bring out from his treasury if not things new and surprising then things old and precious ought he not to send round the bellman to cry aloud that there would be no service but what right had he to lay his troubles the burden of his dishonesty upon the shoulders of them who faithfully believed and who looked to him to break to them their daily bread and would not any attempt at a statement of the reasons he had for such an outrageous breach of all decorum be taken for a denial of those things concerning which he only desired most earnestly to know that they were true for he had received from somewhere he knew not how or whence a genuine prejudice in favor of christianity while of those refractions and distorted reflexes of it which go by its name and rightly discuss many he had had few of the tenets thrust upon his acceptance thus into the dark pool of his dull submissive life the bold words of the unbeliever had fallen a dead stone perhaps but causing a thousand motions in the living water question crowded upon question and doubt upon doubt until he could bear it no longer and starting from the door on which at last he had sunk prostrate he rushed in all but involuntary haste from the house and scarcely knew where he was until in a sort he came to himself some little distance from the town wandering hurriedly in field paths end of chapter 11 read by john sherman Winfield, Illinois.